CNN's chief White House correspondent Jim Acosta offers his firsthand account of covering the Trump administration. He's interviewed by Jay Rosen, founder of PressThink and New York University journalism professor. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Jim Acosta, thank you so much for doing this. Let's get right to it. Thanks for having me. Where are your people from? Where's your family from? How did they uh, come to these shores? Well, my dad is a Cuban immigrant. He came to this country in 1962, uh, three weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, he was just 11 years old at the time, and uh, they, he and my grandmother uh, fled Cuba together. Uh, they originally uh, landed in Miami, uh, but then shortly after that moved up to the Washington, D.C. area, settled in northern Virginia, uh, which is where I'm from. Uh, my dad met my mm -hmm. mom, who is, uh, was an American uh, of Irish and Czech descent. Uh, she was born in Washington, D.C. at the Women's Hospital in Washington over near Georgetown. Uh, her parents, uh, my grandparents, are buried over, over at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, so my family is sort of a, a collision between uh, Havana and Washington. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it w my dad, uh, you know, gave me a lot of stories uh, from his upbringing in Cuba. Uh, he, he, you know, talked about growing up on the island until he was about 11 years old and had to flee. Uh, and I still to this day have the passport that they gave to him, that the Cuban government gave him when he fled uh, the country. And, he, you know, you can see the expression on his face. Uh, he, he just looks mm -hmm. like a, uh, a kid uh, who's only 11 years old and is uncertain about where he's off to. Um, but, you know, as I write in the book, uh, you know, the enemy of the people, a dangerous time to tell the truth in America. Uh, when he arrived in northern Virginia, this was the first time that they had ever experienced winter. Uh, and there was a Presbyterian church in northern Virginia that gave my dad and my grandmother, you know, coats and sweaters and warm clothing uh, so they could handle their first uh, winter in Washington, D.C., uh, so I always think about that, uh, the, the compassion, the kindness that was shown to my uh, Cuban side of the family uh, when they got to the United States. And how did your dad and, and you become citizens? Well, I, I was born in uh, northern Virginia. I was born in Fairfax County oh, Hospital right outside the Beltway. How did your family become yeah. citizens? Yeah, right. How did your, how did your uh, uh, family become citizens? Uh, well, they, they, uh, they've been in this country, uh, you know, uh, for some 50 years. Uh, my dad had to go through the immigration process. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where I, I feel as though uh, my family story is a, a, a lot like the other stories of other uh, immigrant uh, families across the country. Uh, you know, they, my dad worked as a, a grocery store worker for 40 years until he couldn't stand anymore. Uh, paid into Social Security and Medicare and through a lot of hard work, earned his retirement. Uh, my mother, as I said, is, is an American. Uh, she worked in the restaurant business. Uh, you know, my parents split up when I was uh, just five years old, and I was essentially raised by a single mother, although my dad stayed in the picture and I saw him on the weekends. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're no strangers to hard work, uh, which is one reason why I, I write in the book when I go to Trump rallies you know, I feel like I can relate to a lot of Trump supporters uh, just as well and, 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 dare I say, better uh, than the man they came to see. And I, I find it interesting talking to a lot of folks who come to these rallies because I, I feel like I relate to them uh, in more ways than they know. Hmm. Um, 
Where did you grow up? In Northern Virginia? Did you right. have um, interests in journalism, in politics then? I did. I, I grew up, uh, you know, in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is right outside uh, Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, politics is, uh, is in your blood if, if that happens. My mom, mm. you know, got the Washington Post on her doorstep every day. She read it cover to cover. Uh, as a matter of fact, when there was an, a story in the Washington Post about this book a few days ago, she said, I saw the story in the Post, and, she, you know, sent me a picture of it. Uh, and, and so every time, you know, there's a story in there, she, she makes sure she saves the clipping uh, and, and sends it off to me. Uh, when I was uh, a, a kid in, in the first grade, uh, one of my very first field trips that I remember was seeing the hostages come home from Iran. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you grow up in this area, you do things like that. My dad, working at his grocery store, uh, ran into people like Dick Gephardt, uh, the former congressman. Uh, he would run into ambassadors and Washington Redskins players and senators and so on. And that also infused in me, uh, you know, some of, some of the Potomac fever that uh, I, I'm grappling with to this day. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, I, I consider it to be a blessing. I, you know, I ran into a political operative uh, years ago who said, oh, I'm so sorry that you had to grow up in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm actually really proud uh, of uh, being a D.C. native. I think it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you get access to the Smithsonian's down on the mall for free and that sort of thing. And uh, lots of friends whose parents work in the government or work in politics. Uh, it was a great life growing up. Hmm. And how did you form an interest in journalism? When did that start? Well, you know, it's interesting. Some of this stuff I, I didn't put in the book because it's not a straight memoir, but I, I appreciate you asking the question. I was on the high school newspaper at my high school at Annandale High School in, in Northern Virginia. Uh, we, it was called the A-Blast because our, our team mascot was the Adams. Uh, so the A-blast was like, you know, an atomic bomb. Uh, and uh, one of the stories that I guess got my interest in journalism that I covered was uh, over at my high school, uh, they took down a mural to Pink Floyd on one of the walls in our high school. And every, it was a big mystery in the school. Where did the Pink Floyd mural go? And up on the wall instead was a, a mural of the Statue of Liberty. And as we found out, it was the French teacher who uh, was responsible for taking down the Pink Floyd uh, mural and putting up uh, one for the Statue of Liberty. So uh, I had to go down to the principal's office and say it's my First Amendment right to you know talk to the principal here and uh, get some answers to my questions. Uh, but I guess you know, if I had to put you know, put my finger on it, that would be one of those episodes. And, and right out of college, I, I worked uh, on the assignment desk at Channel Five here in D.C. I made four dollars and twenty-five cents an hour, had no health benefits. Uh, and they would send me out to cover, you know, drive-by shootings and things like that around Washington, D.C. Marion Barry, the, the old mayor, would show up and give a press conference. And so this got in, infused in my blood at a pretty early age. Hmm. You're White House correspondent for CNN in television reporting. That's, in a way, about as far as you can go. When did you form that ambition to reach that level of the business? Well, I grew up uh, covering, uh, or watching, I should say, the likes of Sam Donaldson and Dan Rather and Wolf Blitzer. Uh, and I think I just, you know, I saw those guys and I said, that's, that's what I want to do. Um, but I knew I had to work hard at it. Uh, I, I didn't come out of college and say, okay, put me on the network. Uh, I started in mm -hmm. Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, in a local station there, and from there went to Dallas, Texas, uh, Chicago, 
Uh, and then after I worked in Chicago for a bit, um, I was hired by uh, CBS News uh, for their affiliate service, uh, then went to CBS News and then CNN. So uh, I went up the old-fashioned way in this business. I climbed the, the ladder from local news uh, to where I'm at now. Yeah. Why have you stayed with CNN? What does CNN stand for in your mind? You know, I think it stands for a commitment to uh, top-notch journalism. And, you know, it's always been, um, I think, one of those news outlets, and it's, it's been universally regarded, I think, in this, in this fashion, as, as, as an outlet where you have a lot of brave journalists out there uh, putting their lives on the line all over the world. We all remember uh, when CNN was set up during the Persian Gulf War. Maybe some of our younger viewers don't remember that, but I remember that. And um, I do. And, and I know you do as well. And so CNN, I think, has, uh, ever since Ted Turner uh, came up with the idea for 24 News, has always had this commitment to uh, very hard-nosed reporting. And, uh, you know, who could, who could argue with having, uh, you know, 24 hours of news at, at your disposal as a journalist? Uh, it, it does make for a very satisfying uh, but very challenging environment as a reporter. Um, you know, when you're on the White House beat uh, at CNN, uh, there's, there are a lot of demands on you, uh, but it's, it's enriched my life, and I'm enormously grateful to the people at CNN, and I'm sure we'll cover it at some point, but, you know, CNN uh, stood behind me during my whole press pass uh, court case, and, you know, there was a real commitment there inside the news organization to make sure uh, that, uh, you know, that we stand up for what's right. And what happened in that case uh, was, you know, that my, my press pass was taken away. Uh, and some news organizations might have been, you know, uh, reluctant or wishy-washy as to what to do. Uh, there was no hesitation uh, when it came right down to it. Uh, when they had to stand behind me, they did. And I'll always be enormously grateful for that. What is the job of a White House correspondent? I think a lot of people think the job is the briefing room or the confrontations with the president. Mm. But I'm asking a simpler thing. What do you do all day? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good question. Uh, and it's not just being in the briefing rooms and, and having uh, those back and forth with the press secretary. My goodness, that's that's just a fraction of it. Uh, these days, uh, being a White House correspondent is different than, say, for example, when I covered it during the Obama administration, the second term of the Obama administration. Uh, these days, we wake up, we look at our phones to see if the president's tweeted, and we're off to the races. And uh, as mm -hmm. I talk about in the book, uh, often those uh, tweets are fact-challenged. Uh, they are not uh, dealing with the real world. And so we have to almost immediately become fact-checkers uh, from the moment we, you know, wake up and uh, before we've uh, poured our first cup of coffee. Uh, and it's, it's typically at that kind of frenetic pace until late at night when we go to bed, when we wait to see if the tweets are still going before we go to bed. Um, you know, I'm talking to a variety of sources all day long. I'm talking to uh, White House officials on background. I'm talking to Republican sources up on Capitol Hill. I'm talking to... Uh, Trump advisors on background, uh, and we try to, uh, through that process, put together uh, our understanding of what the news is that day. Uh, we're also taking in all kinds of footage from the Hill, uh, what Democratic leaders are saying, what's happening in the various investigations uh, pertaining to the, to the Russia probe, 
uh, and all these other uh, probes uh, attached to President Trump. And uh, it, it is a messy, chaotic, uh, you know, exhausting uh, challenge on a daily basis. But I think by the time the news comes on at the end of the day, uh, we, we are doing a pretty good job at giving the American people accurate, reliable information, which is, after all, our, our job. Now, contrast that with when Barack Obama was president, we had regular briefings on a daily basis. And those briefings, yes, mm -hmm. for, from time to time with Jay Carney or uh, Josh Earnest, they would be contentious, I suppose, from time to time. Uh, but Josh Earnest gave so many briefings, and they were so long, you know, they'd be an hour, hour and a half long. You know, it would almost uh, be one of those. And, and this would happen from time to time. The Associated Press reporter uh, would, would try to say, okay, thanks very much. And then Josh would say, well, let me take a couple <laughs> more questions from the room. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and, you know, as, as folks know, as of this taping, we're roughly 90-plus days since our last official White House briefing in the White House briefing room. And we just don't have access to White House officials the way that we used to, even during the Trump administration, where we have them on the record in that briefing room uh, where everybody is miked, uh, and you have a variety of reporters, not just the networks uh, who were uh, vying to get a question in, uh, but also print reporters from the wire services, newspapers, uh, foreign news outlets. Uh, that has been lost uh, for the last three months, and it's over the last six months, it's happened so rarely uh, that this has, it, 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 as a tradition here in Washington, has kind of gone away, and it's, it's sad. I'd like to see it come back. Yeah, I want to ask about that, because mm -hmm. when Josh Ernest stood there um, for, um, for even longer than you wanted and answered questions, he was doing that because it, it was the perception of the Obama administration and previous administrations that it was in the interests of the president to do this. That's right. um, they didn't do it because they were such believers in great journalism. They didn't do it because they wanted to help you do your stories. It was their belief that having daily briefings was important for the president. Um, so it was a matter of self-interest. Why isn't there self-interest in having the briefing still? Why, why did that go away, do you think? Well, one of the things I observed, and I, and I talk about this in the book, uh, one of the things I observed over the last six months or so uh, Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, was finding herself in a position where either she was knowingly or unknowingly passing on false information to the American people. For example, uh, when she said, and the White House said, uh, that the president did not dictate the memo to the New York Times explaining Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian attorney at Trump Tower in 2016, and then we found out uh, that uh, the president had dictated that memo. Uh, Sarah Sanders was essentially caught in a situation where she had to explain away uh, false information that had been given to the public. Uh, same thing happened mm -hmm. with the Stormy Daniels case. Uh, Sarah Sanders was in the briefing room having to ask question, answer questions about why false information, inaccurate information, had been given to the American people uh, prior to some revelations happening in the Stormy Daniels case. And, I, and as Sarah was saying in the briefing room, well, I'm just giving you the best information that I have at the time. Uh, as we later mm -hmm. found out in the Mueller report, uh, there was one instance where Sarah Sanders admitted to federal investigators that she uh, essentially gave false information as to why uh, James Comey, the fired FBI director, uh, was let go. She had said uh, that he had lost the faith uh, and the confidence of uh, multiple FBI agents. Um, 
she admitted to federal investigators that that was not entirely accurate. And so there have been episodes, I think, where they've been caught uh, giving the American people false information. My sense is, is that they realized that that was not an asset, that was a liability. And so now what we have in its place, Jay, is we have a situation where uh, Sarah Sanders or other top officials will go out under the North Lawn of the White House to where the live positions take place on Pebble Beach, and I talk about this in the book. They'll do an exclusive interview, typically with Fox News. Then they'll walk back to their offices inside the White House, and we in the press have to gather in the driveway in the hopes that they'll stop and talk to us and answer some of our questions. It's an environment that's really tilted in their favor now because, you know, she can essentially say, well, that's all the time that I have. I've got to get out of here. <laughs> she almost sounds like a cable news host. Uh, and she'll say, that's all the time that I have. I've got to go back inside. And she'll take maybe four or five questions. There have been episodes, I suppose, where, you know, she, she's taken more than that. But it's not the same as when we're, we have them in the briefing room. Everybody's mic'd up. The cameras are on. The lights are on. There's a stenographer there uh, recording things for the record. My, I, my understanding is, is that most of these driveway gaggles, and I don't know if a lot of folks have focused in on this, there's no stenographer present, typically, uh, taking notes. Mm. In the White House briefing room, mm. there's a stenographer, and the public may not be aware of this, there's a stenographer there taking uh, notes and uh, holding a microphone and a recorder up uh, so we can have an accurate uh, reflection of what is said in, in the back and forth of that briefing room. We don't really have that anymore in these driveway gaggles. There's no public record that you can go back to and say, well, on this date in this driveway gaggle, Sarah, Sandals, Sarah Sanders said this, uh, whereas before we had that sort of thing. And so the, the environment has changed uh, greatly, and I don't think the public is as well served as they were when we had those briefings. A lot of the president's tweets amount to disinformation. They often have, as you noted, factual errors in them. They can be huge distractions to what is really going on that day in Washington. A lot of people that I talk to, because I criticize the press, I talk to people online all day long uh, about right. media coverage. A lot of people wonder, why don't you just ignore or downplay the president's tweets? Why, yeah. why let them drive you to distraction like this? Why Why yeah. not just ignore them? It's a great question, Jay, and, and, and I talk about this from time to time in the book. Um, we have been grappling with just how to cover uh, this very unprecedented presidency, unconventional presidency uh, from the get-go. And they, this goes back to the campaign, because remember these tweets uh, and these uh, false statements were flying all around during the campaign. I remember during the campaign when the president uh, then-candidate Trump called into question the uh, nation's unemployment rate uh, that was generated by the Labor Department. Uh, he's, he uh, hinted that um, Ted Cruz's father was involved in the Kennedy assassination. Uh, you know, he's, inf he's obviously infamously known for saying that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country, which is obviously a, a, a flat-out lie. Uh, and then he carried this, uh, this act into the White House. And we saw very early on in the administration where the president trying to explain uh, how he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, saying that you know, three million undocumented immigrants voted illegally in the 2016 election, and that's why he lost the popular vote. Well, there's no evidence of that. There's no proof of that. And so what do you do as a journalist? And I talk about this during the book. It's, it's, I call it a, a game of what would you do. Uh, do you ignore 
a flat-out falsehood like that, or do you correct the record? Uh, as we know, Jay, the Washington Post fact-checker recently discovered uh, that the president has uh, uttered uh, 10,000, approximately 10,000 false or misleading statements. I'm not sure where the number is now as of this taping, uh, since he came into office. And that has made us fact-checkers in real time. Uh, we spend a lot of our time and energy fact-checking the president's statements and tweets, and this upsets the president, upsets his team, upsets a lot of Trump supporters out there who uh, sometimes lash out at us uh, in ways that uh, make us feel uh, endangered and threatened. Um, but, I, you know, Jay, my, my question to the viewer is, who, and the folks online who talk with you is, my goodness, what would this world be like two years in had we not been fact-checking the president and exhausting ourselves uh, chasing these uh, so-called bright, shiny objects, had we not been fact-checking him, what would be our concept of reality today? What would be our concept of the truth? There, there needs to be, and I think folks recognize this across our industry, there needs to be a, a, a common sense of what the truth is and what reality is. And I think if we had spent the last two years ignoring the tweets or not talking about the tweets or, and some of the things that he says, we could talk about this during this interview, which are clearly driven to... Uh, change up the news cycle and benefit him politically, but but at the same time we can't just let falsehoods stand. We can't just let lies go without being checked. I don't think we would be doing our job at that point. Yeah. Well, let me ask the question in a different way. Yeah. It has been a premise uh, of people doing your job that what the president says is news. Yeah. Do you think that's still a fair standard? Does that still apply? It is, and, and I, I don't want to date this, this interview too much, but when the president said to ABC's George Stephanopoulos that he would be open to receiving information from a foreign government, you know, listen, that's news. Uh, that's not just news, that's disturbing information for the American people to receive. And did it uh, throw off the news cycle? Did it just, you know, throw us down the... Uh, the, the, down the rabbit hole and, and, and force us through the looking glass again? Yes, of course. But my goodness, what are we supposed to do? Just sort of let that sort of that kind of thing stand and, and not analyze it, not uh, fact check it, not talk about it, not bring back uh, the things that the president has said in the past with respect to Russia and interference and so on. As I write in the book, uh, you know, in the chapter uh, Russia, if you're listening, uh, you know, I, I was the one who asked that question at that press conference in Florida in 2016 uh, that elicited that response. I asked the president, well, why won't you tell Putin to stay out of our democracy, out of our election process? And that is when he went on to say, you know, Russia, if you're listening, if you could find Hillary Clinton's emails, you'd be hmm. rewarded mightily by our press. That's not an exact quote. I'm paraphrasing. But I think I've got it mostly right. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, we are in this position right now where we have no choice uh, but to report on what he says, what he tweets, uh, because, as I said before, we can't have a situation in this country where our common sense of the truth and our common sense of reality is warped and thrown off because uh, the president, in, in what he says, goes unchallenged. I just can't imagine a situation like that. And if, if somebody out there can build us a better mousetrap, I'm all... I'm all ears. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to listen. But my sense of it is, Jay, is that we are going to have to exhaust ourselves for as long as it takes to cover and fact-check this president. 
In January of 2016, you were taken off the White House beat and uh, assigned to cover the Trump campaign. Uh, why? Why you? And why Trump? <laughs> what was the logic of that assignment? Uh, well, I, I, I uh, wanted to cover him. Uh, I, you know, I was seeing what was happening at these rallies. Uh, I had, of course, like everybody else, absorbed uh, and observed uh, some of the rhetoric he was using out on the campaign trail. It, it appeared to me to be a campaign unlike anything we've, we've seen in our lifetimes, uh, a president who refers to Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals, um, a candidate uh, who, you know, w made a plea for some kind of a policy position where uh, Muslims are banned from entering the United States. Uh, those are unprecedented uh, political stances and policy positions uh, that, that, that just run counter to anything we've seen in our lifetime covering politics. And so I wanted to get out there on the campaign trail, see what this was all about. And of course, as he was throwing out that red meat and using that kind of rhetoric, he was packing arenas with uh, folks, uh, you know, clamoring for more. Um, and, you know, I, I just found that to be, you know, a very interesting assignment and uh, you know I, I wanted to cover this campaign and see what it was like because my sense of it was is that you know something was changing in America out there on the campaign trail and I wanted to go and observe it. Did you think he could win? I did not. I did not think he could win. I thought uh, but we went through this uh, periodically during the campaign uh, when the president said uh, Then-candidate Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Uh, when he said that John McCain was not a war hero, uh, when he appeared to mock a disabled reporter from the New York Times, uh, I thought, uh, and, and then, of course, when Access Hollywood happened, I thought that the collective weight of those uh, scandals uh, would uh, do him in and as a candidate. And that just didn't happen. Um, and as we saw... And what... what, yeah. what, what illusion were you under then? Sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but no. what, what, what do you think you were, you were, you were assuming that mm -hmm. wasn't true? Well, we, we, as you and I both know, Jay, we've covered candidates and seen candidates out on the campaign trail for a generation now. Uh, the, these were all mistakes that it would have uh, done in any other uh, presidential candidate, and it didn't happen with this one. Now, there's a variety of reasons why that did not occur, but what I was at Trump campaign rallies, and he would say, I'd like to punch that protester in the face, um, that just struck me as something that, you know, at, at some point you're not going to be able to get away with, but this was a part of the smashing of conventions and norms that helped him uh, win the presidency. And one of the things I write about in the book is the people inside the Trump campaign were sitting there behind the scenes watching the coverage. And what they saw was, wow, uh, when he goes out there and makes these kinds of outlandish comments, makes these outrageous remarks, uh, it drives the coverage. It, it throws uh, the, the, the news cycle off course and puts all of the attention on him. And, of course, he noticed that as well. Uh, he's still using that technique to this day. Uh, which is why, you know, I write in the book, you know, uh, I talked to a senior White House official uh, who said, you know, this is a president who rules by instability. He creates instability around him, so that way he's in control of the chaos. And I think that we saw that pattern during the campaign. We're seeing it now during his presidency. Okay. Um, what do you think 
you in the press, in the news media, maybe you specifically, Jim, got wrong about the 2016 election? Well, and I talk about this in the book, uh, you know, one of the things that obviously, you know, looking back, um, and, and folks at CNN, CNN and other news outlets have been very upfront about this, we probably should not have given then-candidate Trump this gavel-to-gavel coverage where his rallies were covered end-to-end uh, with, you know, with no commercial interruption, uh, you know, in ways that the other candidates uh, would, have, would have loved to have had. Uh, you know, you know that, that was advertising uh, money couldn't buy. And moving forward, I think what we've uh, decided, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I think it, it, it looks like going into the 2020 campaign, uh, we are not going to be covering those rallies end to end, in part because they're so factually challenged often that you can't really, you know, fact check it uh, as the words are coming out of his mouth. And so it may be better for the American people in terms of getting accurate, reliable information for us to cover this rally and then come to it afterwards and say, okay, Jim, uh, what did the president say there? Uh, what, what, did, what did he have to, uh, you know, say to those folks in that arena? Uh, and, and in addition to having a campaign reporter there, having fact checkers. Uh, we just recently hired Daniel Dale, who is a terrific fact checker with the Toronto Star, now with CNN. Uh, and he, yep. you know him, Jay. Uh, he's, he's there live oh, yeah. tweeting all of this stuff and fact checking these things in real time. He has sort of this encyclopedic knowledge now of everything the president has said, and he has this uh, incredible ability to fact check, check things almost immediately, as he says, because he's heard these things over and over again. And so I think what you're going to see going into 2020 is the coverage really uh, get tailored to the time that we're in right now, which is a time when people think they're entitled to their own set of facts. Uh, to paraphrase Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own, your own facts. Uh, these days, people feel like they're entitled to their own set of facts. And if you're, if you're going to be, you know, in the business, as I like to say, of not just reporting the news, but defending the truth, we have to be able to be smarter and savvier, uh, you know, folks in this business when it comes to providing information to the American people and covering these candidates. What do you think Trump and his team had right about the news medium? Well, I, I talk about this uh, in the book. Uh, when I, uh, I had an interview with Steve Bannon, we talked uh, over the phone, and, you know, he describes it this way, and not to get too professorial uh, with the professor there, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he says that, that Donald Trump was really a Marshall McLuhan-type candidate. The medium is the message. And what Donald Trump understood during the 2016 campaign, according to Steve Bannon, was that if you drive... Um, the narrative, you can control the campaign news cycle. And essentially, that is what Donald Trump did. And that is a lesson that they took away from that campaign and have applied to the presidency. As, as Bannon puts it, and I write in the book, uh, this was how he was able to cut through 16 uh, candidates, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, a lawnmower going across uh, the front lawn, uh, like a scythe through grass. Uh, and, you know, I think... Um, he, he's right about that. Um, I think he understood, and I think the, the campaign understood, that the media, uh, by and large, uh, is going to chase what the news is that day. And if you have, and so in 2016, if you have a candidate saying all these outlandish, outrageous things, 
it is going to draw attention. Now, folks will say, well, you know, what about you guys at CNN? That's all you guys did. Let's go back. Let's remember there were other news outlets, other networks covering uh, this candidate prominently just as we were. Uh, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, major newspaper websites were had Donald Trump stories all over their main page. We were all consuming uh, the same uh, information and delivering it almost in the same fashion, these OMG headlines that he would create on a daily basis. Uh, and it, mm. it did enable him, I think, to command the narrative during that campaign, no question about it. You just used the phrase, uh, command the narrative. What is the narrative? What is that, the narrative? It's a great question. Because it goes to, you know, uh, these, these words that we use in Washington, which folks, you know, folks in other parts of the country are like, what is he talking about? I indeed. Think, indeed. I think the narrative is, you know, what the common understanding is uh, among journalists and political operatives and politicians, what the story is that day. And mm. rightly or wrongly. Um, and I think, for example, right now, uh, the narrative or the item that is driving the news cycle is when the president said, well, I'm open to receiving information from a foreign government. Um, that kind of comment is going to drive the quote-unquote narrative. Now, should it? Uh, obviously, uh, you know, if you were to take a two-dimensional or uh, paint a caricature of, of our coverage, you would say, well, you're just obsessed with that. That's all you're doing all day long. That's not the case. We have uh, reporters out there on a daily basis uh, working very hard to, you know, work on other items that are out there, uh, you know, on the agenda. Um, you know, what's happening down at the border, what's happening with the environment. Uh, we have great uh, international correspondents and teams overseas uh, reporting on the news. And all of that is thrown into the mix, and we try to put uh, a newscast on that is balanced, but no question about it, there are items uh, that drive the coverage on a daily basis, and I would say that is, you know, you're, you know, I'm not writing this down and, and handing you a, a term paper in a week from now, but just off the top of my head, that is probably the best uh, explanation I can come up with as to what the daily narrative is on a daily basis. Do you know for a fact, by which I mean from your reporting, yeah. that neither Trump nor his family ever thought he would win? Based on my reporting, talking to my sources, they did not think they were going to win that election. And um, I, I will tell you a story. When I ran into Ryan Priebus on the morning of Election Day, uh, you know, he said to me, it's going to take a, a miracle for us to win. Uh, and proceeded to say, listen, uh, when Access Hollywood happened, we thought that was it. Um, mm. Now, what we saw during the tail end of that campaign, obviously the dynamic changed. When the Comey letter came out 11 days before the election, the letter saying that he, you know, the FBI, James, James Comey, the former FBI director, then FBI director, was saying we're reopening parts of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. What I noticed was the polls sort of coming to a screeching halt, the momentum for the Clinton campaign coming to a screeching halt, and there was a sense of confidence that Donald Trump had at, at the very tail end of that campaign that probably was not being measured accurately by the polls. Uh, you know, you, you know if, if things are changing a week out before an election, I think it's difficult for the polling to reflect that in the last few days of a campaign. And it seemed that mm -hmm. there was a swing in his direction at that, at that point. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, there there was a sense inside the campaign, you know, in in the last month uh, of October there before the November election, that they were in big trouble. Uh, because of that Access Hollywood controversy, things obviously changed there at the very end. Now, had we known about the Stormy Daniels case, had that been in the news cycle, had Michael Cohen and the president not come up with the scheme to conceal that, uh, had that been known right before the election, that could have changed it again. Uh, but, of course, we can't go back and, and, and uh, you know, imagine what would have happened uh, accurately. But that certainly would have been a game changer, I think, right at the very end of that campaign, had, we, had the public known about that. Do you remember your thoughts and uh, emotions uh, on the day after the election when it was clear that Trump had won and that you were probably going to be covering Donald Trump in the White House? Do you remember what you felt then was ahead for you and the rest of the press? Yes. Uh, my, my concern, Jay, uh, was that, uh, first of all, when I saw you know, all the red hats come out at three o'clock in the morning on election night that a, a nationalist president had arrived on the scene and that we were about to see something we'd never seen before. Um, I, I knew that uh, that we were in for it in terms of having a contentious relationship uh, with the incoming administration when I talked to a, a communications aide that night and said, well, maybe now that we've won, maybe we'll get better coverage. I mean, even after they won, uh, they still were aggrieved, as I write in the book. Um, but the concern that I had during the campaign, Jay, when the president would go out there and call us the disgusting news media, the dishonest news media, liars, scum, criminals, and so on, in front of thousands of cheering supporters, uh, my concern was was that uh, you know this act was about to be rolled right into the Oval Office, and it was. And mm -hmm. As we saw at that press conference on, on January 11, 2017, when he called me and, and my news organization, Fake News, uh, he was fully prepared to continue to escalate this rhetoric aimed at the news media. And my concern during the campaign was that somebody might get hurt. Uh, you know, I had people coming up to me and saying all sorts of things at some of these rallies. I remember one day finding on one of the press tables a sign, and I held this up on CNN, that had a swastika next to the word media. And I remember thinking at the time, my goodness, if, you know, there are folks out there who would equate us with Nazis, uh, that would potentially invite somebody to do something terrible to a reporter. And so I became concerned very early on during the campaign. Uh, and people say, oh, that, that's just words, that's just rhetoric. No, that's, that's disturbing. Uh, I've covered four presidential mm -hmm. campaigns. I've never seen that level of hostility and that kind of rhetoric aimed at the press before. Yes, individually here and there, there might be anecdotes and that sort of thing. But if you talk to uh, people who are experienced campaign reporters, experienced political reporters, we had never seen anything like that during that campaign. And the, this, you, this escalated in, think, in the presidency. Right. Sorry. Did you Did you think that the office would change him, would tame this kind of behavior, that he would become sort of more friendly to the establishment, that he would begin to behave like other presidents? Well, I write about that in the book, Jay. Uh, you know, you'll remember at that time there were all these pundits and, and folks who are from the uh, conventional wisdom uh, corner of Washington, D.C., and, and presidential historians and so on who thought, well, maybe the 
the office, you know, when the weight, uh, uh, you know, and the majesty of the presidency rested upon uh, the shoulders of Donald J. Trump, he would turn into something like Ronald Reagan. My concern was, having watched that campaign and covered that campaign and absorbed that hostility out on the campaign trail, I, I thought there was no way that was going to happen. And that this was a unique president who was coming into office, who understood how he could control the news cycle, how he could change the narrative, manipulate the media. Uh, and if it meant attacking members of the press, he was going to continue to do that. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, when we had that press conference at Trump Tower on January 11, 2017, our news organization broke that story that uh, the president-elect had been told by the U.S. intelligence community that uh, the, the Russians might have compromising information on him and that that might be used against him as president, he came out into that press conference and called that fake news. He was saying that up was down and black was white and uh, real was fake. And, and that just wasn't the case. So in addition to uh, the bullying of the press and, and demonizing of the press, we saw an assault on the truth that, that day. That also was a hallmark of his rise to power. Uh, saying that Barack Obama wasn't mm. born in this country and, and all of these other things that he said during the campaign. Um, and, and that was also a concern of mine going into, the, into this administration, that uh, he was going to pay, play fast and loose with the facts and the truth. And that, you know, folks will say, well, why do you cover the tweets? And why do you do this? And why do you do that? Uh, it, it, it really felt like the campaign had continued right on into uh, 2017, that the campaign never really stopped. Uh, and that is essentially mm. how he behaves. He behaves as if he's still campaigning. We had rallies. Remember, we had rallies during the transition. And I was thinking to myself, why are we having a rally during the transition period? Uh, don't they have to get, you know, an administration up and running? Uh, and, you know, he, he just loves being out there at these rallies. It's where it's his happy place, as I describe it in the book. And he's, I think, uh, conducted his presidency as if the campaign never stopped. What is the Washington establishment, and do you consider the news media to be part of it? I suppose so. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I write in the book about my blue-collar roots is, uh, you know, you hear folks uh, like Steve Bannon refer to us as elitist and so on. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it was a long time before I, I flew in business class <laughs> or rode the Acela, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't consider myself to be an elitist, and I certainly wasn't uh, that growing up. But there, there is an, a Washington establishment, I suppose, uh, the cocktail party circuit, uh, politicians, uh, political operatives, members of the press, and so on. I suppose the president might refer to those folks as the swamp. Uh, but these days, uh, you know, it's the same swamp, different alligators. Uh, and, and you see that, uh, that the conservative news media in this town has a much more prominent role uh, in Washington. And so there, there is such a thing, I suppose, as the Washington establishment. It's not like uh, some secret society where you have a, a, hand, a secret handshake and you go through a, 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 you know, a secret door and there, you know, all of a sudden you're in this room with all these, these folks. Um, I, uh, as a kid growing up, kind of on the outside looking in, because I had blue-collar parents and so on, I, didn't, I wasn't the son of a diplomat or the son of a senator or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I, I've always thought that there was this Washington establishment, um, and I suppose there is one, but it's not as cartoonish or two-dimensional as I think folks think. 
Do you think the intimacy between journalists and the Washington establishment might be one of the reasons there is such rage at the press or mm. there is a resentment of the press that the president could take advantage of? Well, that's a great question, Jay. I think that, yes, I think that there is uh, a coziness there that uh, that people have picked up on, that they've detected and, and that they're irritated by. But I will say, uh, and, and this may sound corny uh, and, and folks may not, uh, may not believe this, uh, but the journalists that I work with over at the White House uh, and out on the campaign trail, these are very dedicated, hardworking people. You know, uh, young, young millennials with their laptops in their laps at uh, one in the morning banging out pieces for the next day's newspaper or uh, for a digital piece that will go on a website. Uh, you know, we're out there covering these campaigns until 10 or 11 o'clock at night and then getting up at 5 in the morning, getting on a plane uh, and going off to the next city. Um, you know, these are some hardworking, very smart and dedicated folks. Um, there really isn't enough time, Jay. I mean, this is one of the things that maybe folks don't quite understand, but I, I'd love, love to explain it. I don't, there's not really enough time to be part of this, this so-called Washington Establishment Club uh, for a lot of us mm. reporters out there. Uh, so this notion that we're, you know, these fat cats scratching each other's backs, I think that's an exaggeration. I think that that is not taking into consideration that you have a lot of hardworking, dedicated people, people who are, who are very dedicated to the idea that the American people deserve to have uh, honest, reliable, accurate information, who are striving very hard day in and day out with a team of editors, producers, and so on, executives, making sure that the information that the American people receive is accurate and reliable. And folks may say, oh, hogwash, uh, you're just there, you know, lining your pockets and upping your Twitter account. Um, I if, if folks want to be that pessimistic and that cynical about it, I suppose I can't change their minds. Uh, but that is not why I'm in this business. That's not why I do this on a daily basis. And I know that there are lots of other folks who are also working in this profession who feel the same way. You write in the book quite a few times about um, off-the-record briefings and events that you go to, uh, drinks at a congressman's office, and chatter mm -hmm. with them. Why, why do speak? Why do people want to speak to you off the record? Well, a lot of times they want to speak to us off the record because they're fearful of being quoted uh, on the record or having their name out there attached to something. Uh, that they don't want their name attached to. Um, and so I, I think uh, what, what folks don't understand when the president says, well, these anonymous sources that people have out there, it's, it's, it's baloney. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we've, uh, you know, for years uh, talked to press secretaries who go out into the briefing room and speak on the record and then go back to their office and call you on the phone and say, can I speak on background or can we talk off the record for a second? And a lot of times they're trying to fill in the blanks in our reporting and give us some context. A lot of times they're trying to spin us uh, and sell us a bill of goods, and we have to be mindful of that, and that's why you need to have uh, you know, a variety of sources and so on that you're talking to. Um, but you know, I, it, it is a tool that flacks use, that operatives use to relay information to us, uh, and you know, we have to be mindful of that. I always try to get folks on the record during this book um, I, I talked to Kellyanne Conway for an hour, and she says, you know, she doesn't agree with the president's use of the term, the enemy of the people. She says she doesn't agree with the practice of separating kids from their parents at the border. 
you know, she tries to correct the record in terms of why she said alternative facts. Uh, you know, she says it was because she uh, mushed together alternative information and additional facts. And I, I try my best to get folks on the record. And that's why going back to the briefings is so important. We need to get these officials on the record. My goodness, we're paying their salaries. Uh, it's the least they can do. Uh, but sometimes sources have to speak on background because they're relaying information to us uh, that, you know, would get them in trouble if they were to talk about it on the record. And that information in some cases, in many cases, is vital to the American people. Why is Kellyanne Conway on CNN so much? Well, she's the counselor to the president. Uh, she is one of the senior most officials in the administration. Um, I think when she uttered the phrase alternative facts, uh, she took a, a hit to her credibility, and it's lasted to this day. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to her for this book. If, you know, what, what folks don't maybe quite understand about this book is it also covers the first two years of the administration. And Kellyanne Conway was a a pretty large figure uh, in the first two years of this administration. She went out there and said alternative facts to try to clean up what Sean Spicer said when he came into the briefing room on the first full day of the administration and said that the president had the largest inauguration crowd in the history of the United States, something that was just a total falsehood. And Kellyanne Conway, a couple of days later, goes, or I think maybe the next day, goes on Meet the Press and uses that term alternative facts to try to explain it away. The president has not only thrust us in the press in this unprecedented situation of having to correct his falsehoods, he's thrust his own staff into the unfortunate position of times of explaining away his falsehoods. And, you know, they were uh, just in almost a rage over the reporting on the crowd size in those first few days of the administration. And that's when she said that. She went on to make other uh, mistakes in talking to us about various things. She talked about a, a Bowling Green massacre at one point that didn't exist. I, I talk about that in the book. And we have her on CNN from time to time. I can't speak on behalf uh, of every time that she's come on, but we're, I think, always hopeful that we can get straight answers. And what I found to be so interesting, Jay, when I talked to her, was here's somebody who has been criticized for not being straightforward, uh, for being you know, a little over the top, uh, maybe a lot over the top, in defending this president. And here she was, in instance after instance, uh, acknowledging disagreements with the president on certain things. And I found that to be, you know, interesting and valuable to the reader, and that's why I included it in the book. Hmm. Um, how would you characterize uh, solidarity within the White House press corps? I think it's pretty good. Um, now, is it perfect? No. Uh, we're competitive journalists, and, uh, you know, we're all trying to get the scoop or trying to get the story. Uh, and so that creates a, a very competitive environment, and it doesn't make for, uh, you know, the greatest show of solidarity at times. But take my press pass case, uh, for example. When the White House suspended my press pass, we had just about every news organization in Washington standing behind CNN as we uh, took the administration to court, even Fox News, and I thought that that was a great display of solidarity. Uh, and as I write in the book, you know, there were members of the White House Correspondents Association who went to Sarah Sanders and said, you know, you're going you're gonna to unite the press corps with this, and that's exactly what happened. Um, and so mm -hmm. are there times when there isn't enough solidarity? Sure, of course. Uh, but I think what we've, um, what we've seen over the last couple of years is a greater display of solidarity as time has gone on because I think we've realized 
um, you know, if we if if we don't hang together, uh, they're going to play divide and conquer, and that's what they have done at times. The president expresses his irritation and exasperation and disgust with CNN all the time. He's called you fake news. He has a obviously a, a thing for you yourself. Um, a lot of people wonder if he despises your network and maybe even you as a professional that much, why does he call on you? It's a great question. Uh, and as I talk about in the book, you know, there was that press conference in February of 2017 where the president calls me very fake news. And then after the press conference is over, Hope Hicks calls and says, Jim, I just want you to know that the president thought you were very professional today and said, Jim gets it. And I thought to myself, well, what is that all about? And I talked to some sources and they were all essentially saying what I sus have suspected for a long time, that this was an act. And what uh, has happened over the last couple of years is that this act of trolling and taunting the press uh, for political gain has gotten out of the president's control. It has gotten out of his control. And now we're seeing, uh, you know, this, you know, he gets upset with us. Uh, his team gets upset with us. His supporters get upset with us to the point, and the vast majority of Trump supporters are, are wonderful people, but there, there are some self-described Trump supporters who lash out at us in ways that make us feel endangered. And I write about this in the book where there are death threats coming in uh, to my social media accounts, uh, death threats coming in via email. Uh, you know, the, the person who sent the pipe bomb to CNN and Democratic officials around the country, uh, that individual had been threatening me on Twitter and leaving death threats that said, uh, you're the enemy of America, you're next. Uh, there was one tweet that featured uh, the grisly image of a decapitated goat's head. Um, and we didn't realize this until after this individual was caught in that white van covered in anti-media signage. And so, yes, I think what began as an act has mutated into a full-blown assault on the press where he calls us the enemy of the people. And as I, I've been trying to say to folks, and one of the messages of my book is, do we want to have a country where the press is referred to as the enemy of the people? Uh, you and I grew up in a country where our parents and grandparents said, we want to leave a country to our kids and grandkids that's better than the one that we found. Now, are we really doing that right now? When we have an environment where the press, where segments of American society are referred to as the enemy of the people, uh, I would argue that we are heading down an uncertain path. And, uh, you know, my concern is, is that you could have a situation where a reporter is hurt or, God forbid, killed. And at that point, Jay, the United States enters a different category of nations. It enters a category of nations where the press, members of the press, don't feel safe doing their jobs. And, you know, that could put a real chilling effect on democracy. It could put a real chilling effect on the First Amendment and the free press of this country. And the concern that I have and the reason why I wrote this book is to sort of wave the caution flag and say, folks, is this the kind of country we want to hand off to the next generation? You said when reflecting on that February press conference that um, this is an act of the president's. Yeah. If it's an act, it certainly incorporates you and your profession in the theater. Mm -hmm. So why not just leave? Why not just exit? I, I wrote a piece the day after Spicer's ran in the briefing room called Send the Interns, in which I recommended <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that people, experienced people like yourselves, go mm -hmm. outside in, send people 
who aren't as experienced into the briefing room and because the real action is elsewhere. But if yeah. you're part of this act, as you put it, why not quit, exit from that theater? Well, I, I think it's a great question, and you make a great point. Uh, it's a terrific point, and, um, you know, a couple of things on that. One is I don't feel like I'm a willing uh, participant in any kind of reality TV-style act. Uh, I'm a reporter covering this president, and we're all grappling with, with how to cover it. Um, having said that, I will point you to the press conference, uh, the press briefing that we had with Sarah Sanders, where she refused to disagree with the president that we are the enemy of the people. And when she gave what I thought was a very unsatisfactory answer to that question, I got up and I left the briefing room. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, we probably um, should have gotten up out of that briefing room a little more from time to time when we were being told mm. uh, these whoppers and these lies. Um, and, you know, uh, folks struggle with, you know, using the word lie. We've been lied to. The American people has been lied to um, and in unprecedented ways. And it's made for a very challenging environment uh, for journalists. Um, having said all of that, uh, if we were to send in the interns, and there are some terrific interns, probably some interns smarter than me, uh, Jay, but, um, but as you know, and you probably received some of this feedback when you wrote the story, if you send an intern in with a list of questions and they don't get that answer the first time, they may not be experienced enough, and I certainly wasn't when I got right out of college, uh, wasn't experienced enough to ask the follow-up question, uh, to continue mm -hmm. to press, to, to realize that you do have the ability to interject if a press secretary or a president is uh, BSing you at that particular moment. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not a perfect science. And, you know, I, I wish we could build a better mousetrap as to how to cover this uh, presidency. But my sense of it is, having done this for three years now, is that we're just going to have to power through this, doing this uh, in the best way possible. Uh, you know, it's a collaborative process inside each and every news organization. When I go in there and I do my job, uh, you know, I may get feedback from time to time that, that says, uh, hey, Jim, that was, that was a good question, but perhaps you could have asked uh, it this way, or perhaps you could have read the quote to them at that particular moment if they're, you know, if they're uh, playing fast and loose with the facts, you could say, but hold on, you know, Mr. President, you said this, mm -hmm. or hold on, Sarah Sanders, you said this in the past. And, you know, we've seen that from time to time from reporters. Uh, you say, well, you did say this at this particular uh, point. Um, so it's not a perfect science. We're always trying to trim the sails. Uh, but my sense of it is, you know, and we don't have a briefing on a regular basis anymore, so there, are, there is no briefing to send the interns to. Uh, but if we ever get back to that point, I think we're going to still have to have experienced journalists in there to, to know, uh, wait a minute, my BS detector is going off. I better, you know, jump in here and, and try to ask this question a different way. I remember when you got up and walked out of the briefing room, and I, I just think, what would happen if the entire press did that at once? And it's mm. an image in my mind that I do wonder what the results of that would be. But we're yeah. out of time, Jim. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for writing the book in the first place. Um, and, and thanks for joining us on C-SPAN. Jay, thank you so much for the opportunity, and I hope folks pick it up and, and think deeply about what I've got to say there, and I, I appreciate the time.